in our ongoing efforts to engage with people from as many different communities as possible, we will speak to guests whose views may variously differ from or align with yours. Green Teacher is an inclusive space and we welcome people from all backgrounds, perspectives and faiths in a collective spirit of collaboration and exploration. This is Talking with Green Teachers, a show where environmental educators discuss recent developments, big ideas and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode, this is where the role of nonprofits comes in, encouraging students to find organizations that are working in effective ways at various levels, you know, locally, regionally, nationally, globally, um, and, and recognizing that the goals of any one organization are part of a bigger picture and part of a global solidarity movement in so many different issues and topics and that even if you can't work directly in places around the world the way that you can change things for the better is starts in your own backyard and in your own in your own community With a new semester set to begin, Sand Patton is preparing to meet her students in the course Sustainability and the Nonprofit Sector at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. As always, the course will be grounded in real-world learning, something Sand is eminently familiar with, owing to her two decades of on-the-ground experience, including 15 years through her consulting practice, Sand Patton and Associates. Ian met with Sam to chat about the role nonprofits play in addressing issues like climate change and what we can learn from the role NGOs have played in changing the conversation around HIV and AIDS. So one of the courses you teach is called Sustainability and the Nonprofit Sector. And in this course, you focus on the role of nonprofit organizations in driving social, political, economic, and environmental change. So focusing specifically on environmental change and ecological sustainability, what gaps do nonprofits fill? Well, nonprofits, you might think, you know, the first thing that might occur to you is thinking of nonprofits as serving roles such as environmental or climate change education, educating the public about some of the challenges we face environmentally and ecologically. Also, you think of nonprofits that do a lot of wildlife habitat or ecosystem conservation work such as nature trusts or preserving specific species or tracts of land. Um, it can be marine areas as well. But there's also some really valuable work that nonprofits play in trying to push some of that social change, motivating citizens as individuals, communities, and nations um, to actually care and act on climate change targets, for example, serving a watchdog function, holding governments and corporations accountable to the commitments and standards that they should be fulfilling or meeting. Um, there's some exciting new work around trying to shift our economy towards renewables and energy efficiency. So it's pretty wide ranging what nonprofits do. Are there any opportunities that you think nonprofits have yet to fully embrace? And you know, this could be at global, national, international levels. Yeah, there's always more work to be done, of course. And I think sustainable commerce and economic alternatives is a field that um, I would like to see 
nonprofits play a bigger role in giving us an alternative to our fossil fuel dependent and addicted society. Our economy is so tied up, especially in Canada, it's so tied up and intertwined with, um, with fossil fuels. And I think nonprofits can play a bigger role in providing alternatives and stimulating alternatives for our economy. I think also nonprofits could play a bigger role and, and are gradually working towards playing more of a legal challenge role. Uh, we have some legally binding agreements, such as the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It's a legal instrument, right? Yeah. And we need to hold our governments to account um, for those commitments. And ideally, nonprofits would play a key role in kind of raising the flag to say, hey, look, citizens, our government is not meeting these agreements and let's apply pressure and, uh, and hold them to account. Yeah, and generally, I think to address climate change, we're going to need major social change. I don't know what you think, Ian, about, you know, like, is that social change incremental or revolutionary? This is a debate I have with my students. Can we accomplish that? through reform or does it require a complete overhaul? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm I'm reading a book right now that's addressing that very specifically about how probably an overhaul would be required, but we also know from the the IPCC report from a couple of years ago that we have this approximately 10-year window to address climate change specifically to get to the Paris targets. So realistically speaking despite our our best intentions to do a systemic overhaul particularly of the economy can that happen within a 10-year period i mean you think about political terms being four or five years and just the pace of paradigm shifts in the past you know using history as a guide and do we have time to create a whole different system or do we have to work with the system that we have but of course change many many big things about it is is that something you've dug into with your students yeah, we talk about social movements and social change and and whether they see it feasibly happening through reform or through revolution. And of course, they, being young people, they're super keen to think about yeah. a revolution. But, uh, you know, there and there are, like, I come from the health sector and specifically HIV AIDS, which we know is a super global issue and had many mm-hmm. um, social justice and human rights implications especially when it came to recognizing it and getting treatment rollout to the poorest parts of the world, especially that are hardest hit. And there's, I think there's some examples from the HIV sector that I would love to see replicated in climate action. Um, You know, that social change that had to happen to shift public opinion as well as create political will and get governments to actually act on something that was considered taboo and you know nobody wanted to talk about sex and drugs which were driving the epidemic and yeah and it's uncomfortable for people to to tackle something like HIV and it's really uncomfortable for people to tackle climate change and, and think about the fundamental changes we'd have to make. What role did nonprofits play in the shift that that we've seen with HIV and AIDS? Well, one of the organizations that I really admire and that is quite famous globally is the Treatment Action Campaign out of South Africa. Mm -hmm. It's an activist organization which was 
co-founded by an activist named Zaki Ahmad, um, who was living with HIV. And in 1998, he started this organization with direct action tactics and, and um, linking it to the anti-apartheid sentiment also that was happening in South Africa at the time. And they basically are credited, Treatment Action Campaign is credited with forcing a very reluctant government of um, the former South African president, Thabo Mbeki, to begin making antiretroviral drugs available to the country, to South Africans. And they essentially had to sue the government for its inaction on its own constitutional health and human rights commitments. And that's a model that I would love to see us doing. You know, we, we've heard of the odd attempt to launch civil suits um, or lawsuits against governments for their inaction on climate change targets. Yeah, and it's interesting to think of it in terms of a human rights abuse. By the time students reach this course, they are familiar with the nuts and bolts of NGOs. The next step is critically examining how they function in relation to public and private bodies. What does that intersection between public, private and NGOs look like on a very on the ground level? Because I know it in reading through all your course outlines, real world learning, practical application are very much front and center. Yeah, I think what we try to do in the course sustainability in the nonprofit sector is take a critical lens on the role of the nonprofit sector in our society. One of the debates we have is around the statement a growing and active nonprofit sector is a sign of a healthy society. Mm. And at first glance, that seems like a self-evident statement. Of course, it's wonderful that we have this big nonprofit sector. But looking at, at it through a critical lens, you can quickly see the many ways that nonprofits fill the gaps that are left by the public and private sector. And in particular, we talk about in terms of human services and you know, health and social services, as well as environmental protection, it's easy to see quickly the ways that nonprofits have to fill in gaps that government is not adequately fulfilling. And it can be argued that, you know, the decline of our welfare state and irresponsibility and lack of attention to environmental and, and human health issues means that the nonprofit sector has to grow and, and continuously become stronger to try to uh, to rectify those situations. So it's it's interesting for the students, I think, to kind of flip that and, and to think about from a critical side how nonprofits have to fill in the gaps. And looking at education specifically, and particularly environmental education, because that's the meat and potatoes of what we do at Green Teacher, how does education fit into this broader web? So nonprofits, I think, play a really important education role with the, with the general public and contribute to public debate and advocacy around policy. They are often quite involved in researching best practices, maybe from other jurisdictions, providing economic, social, or technical analysis of different policy options, evaluating proposed policies and initiatives against benchmarks that are established, you know, in terms of environmental, economic, and social commitments and targets. That public education is really important for generating political will and pressure, which, you know, often heats up around election time. And just generally ensuring that laws and policies are implemented 
governments are are infamous for making commitments that they don't fulfill. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, the unfortunate reality, and that's probably been true right from the very first government that ever existed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you mentioned about research and how a lot of nonprofits engage in that, and you're involved in community-based research. Uh, you teach at two universities, Dalhousie and Halifax, and then digitally, or virtually rather, you teach at Mount Allison in Sackville, New Brunswick. Despite all of this, you don't primarily identify as an academic. Why is that? Um, I'm probably revealing a little of the stigma I feel towards. And what um, is that stigma? The, the, the traditional ivory tower of academia, <laughs> the, the research establishment. And mostly it's almost, um, it comes from my experience in community-based research where far too often academics will swoop into a community and almost as bluntly say, will you be my community for this study that's advancing my own program of research and not always taking the time and attention to understanding what's of value and priority to the community itself. So I really see teaching and working within universities as my side gig and it's a way for me to express and advance my influence and encourage social change. So through influencing students and trying to pass on some of my learning from working in the community, I see that as, a, as an avenue for me to, to do community-based work. But it's my first and foremost goals and motivations are not to advance my own program of research or my own, um, my own CV. It's time for a short break. We'll be right back. Hey folks, it's Ian here. I just want to let you know about our two nonprofit books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one serves as a toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons which are focused on four dimensions of climate change, global warming, climate instability, consequences of global warming, and climatic flip. If you're interested in placing an order, just visit us at greenteacher.com. We also have special rates available for bulk orders. To ground learned concepts in reality, San has a deep well of stories and experiences to draw from, always a popular and engaging feature of her classes. You have over 20 years of frontline, on-the-ground experience in communities. Needless to say, you must have many different stories, which I know you like to bring into the class so that it's much more relatable for students. Are there any stories that are especially resonant with your students? Yeah, I like to talk about the development of a global sentiment, a, a global awareness and a global sensitivity by telling a story about a colleague of mine back um, in the 90s. He's passed away now, but his name was Bob Mills. This is when I still lived and worked in Alberta. And he was a former school teacher who actually lost his job because he became HIV positive and due to discrimination, um, was fired from his teaching job. So he became involved in the HIV movement um, locally in Alberta. But he quickly developed an interest in international HIV issues as well. And he and I went together to the conference AIDS 2000 in Durban, which is always a huge international conference. Um, it moves around the world. And the theme for 2000 was breaking the silence around treatment and care and getting 
recognizing the human rights of people living with HIV, particularly in resource poor settings such as Sub-Saharan Africa. We went to a massive demonstration. There must have been 10,000 people out on the streets marching in protest of the lack of access to antiretrovirals. By this time in 2000, antiretrovirals had been made available in North America and in Western Europe for about four years already and were credited with completely saving people's lives. They called it the Lazarus effect. Yeah, yeah. it's quite amazing. And all of these people in resource poor countries had little to no access to these drugs in any affordable way. At that time, um, an annual regimen would cost about 10,000 US and it was making the pharmaceutical companies rich, but completely out of the reach of most people who needed it. So there was a huge demonstration. I There must have been 10,000 people there at least. And uh, Bob and I got up on a concrete wall um, just to get a better view and to take photos and just to take in the power of that huge that huge crowd chanting and singing and and waving signs and at that moment his um he had this you know sanyo digital watch um that went off beep 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 beep, beep like that kind of sound you know and he looked at it, he's like oh i gotta take my meds it's time to take my medication so just you know instinctively he took his his medication and I handed him some water that I had and we just looked at each other and like that in that instant we just realized the disparity between what we took so much for granted coming from Canada and what all these 10,000 people in front of us were desperately shouting for and fighting for. So that was a really impactful moment for me because we came back together and redoubled our efforts not only to improve treatment access in Canada Lots of marginalized groups still had difficulty accessing treatment, but we, we really shifted our focus to helping internationally as well. So that was a kind of a, a formative moment for me. I can That's imagine. just one of the stories I tell students, yeah. Yeah. How do students react when that comes up in class? Um, I think they really like the personal story of it. They can picture and imagine what it felt like. And they really like to think about the way that we as Canadians have so much privilege. I think it's, it's um, impactful for them to think about the, um, the disparities across the globe and to try to place ourselves in the shoes of people who have so much less than we have here. And all the different ways that as uh, Canadians, the way we consume and the way we spew <laughs> waste into our ecosystems and the consequences it has for people clear across the globe, I think is a really important message and not one to be overwhelming, but one to be mobilizing and create that sense of global community and solidarity. And when students hear a story like that, what is your hope that they're going to do with it? I mean, obviously it has a big impact. It gets them thinking about it. And what's the next step from there? I think this is where the role of nonprofits comes in, encouraging students to find organizations that are working in effective ways at various levels, you know, locally, regionally, nationally, globally, and in recognizing that the goals of any one organization are part of a bigger picture and part of a global solidarity movement in so many 
different issues and topics. And that even if you can't work directly in places around the world, the way that you can change things for the better is starts in your own backyard and in your own, in your own community. So I think that helps students feel a little less overwhelmed. Keeping your feet on the ground also involves responding to the here and now and gleaning lessons from the challenges of the day. Certainly right now we're seeing so many additional pressures with the COVID pandemic and nonprofits are struggling in different ways. A lot of government resources have been diverted, understandably so, to COVID-specific projects. There's a lot of despair. A lot of people are, are losing hope. And you could describe what we're living through right now as the sea of uncertainty. How do we keep the momentum going for social and environmental change when most people, I think, or a great many people are understandably focused on just getting through the day? Yeah, I think there's a lot of messages that come out of the COVID crisis that are instructive for addressing climate change, for example. You know, public health and the idea that we are only as healthy as, as our community aligns together to, to combat something and to, to take concerted action. If people in our community, in our immediate neighborhood, in our immediate um, city don't cooperate in, you know, stemming the tide of, of COVID, then we all suffer. And it's really the same kind of issue with um, climate change impact. And I think in some ways, COVID and our response to it has given me some optimism. Um, and I try to frame that with my students as well. Um, one of the uh, exam questions I had last um, last semester in the spring and in, in April on their final exam, they had to talk about the ways that COVID has taught us lessons about how we might react as a society and as a globe to the challenges of climate change. And the encouraging thing is that we pretty much overnight, it felt like, um, drastically changed our lifestyles. We drastically reoriented our lives for the greater good to protect ourselves and to protect each other. And it's possible for us to slow down, to stop consuming as much, to stop traveling as much, to take uh, public health um, and the well-being of other people into account in everything we do. I think there are some you know, challenges and how sustainable is that over the long term? Can we yeah. keep that up? And what's the fatigue of that? Um, but there have been some good lessons that have come out of this as well. Yeah, I mean, the whole sentiment of think globally, act locally is directly related to COVID. We're all extremely local. We're living in much smaller spaces. We're not able to travel. We're told to stay home. You know, a yeah. lot of people are told not to leave their house, not, you know, we have these bubbles of, say, 10 people, depending on where, where you're living. So it's really doubling down on your immediate surroundings, but for the betterment of not letting this virus spread to the next town, the next province, state, country, overseas, etc. And you hate to think that such a terrible thing as a pandemic has shown us these lessons that we could apply to something else like climate change, but those parallels are certainly there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we need to hold on to those lessons. What I worry about is that we'll just rebound and go whole hog <laughs> um, the other way. As soon as things open up again, um, people just go crazy, you know, with jet setting and, and uh, 
purchasing and I'm hoping that there's enough of a slowdown that it creates a psychic slowdown as well and a, and a bit of introspection mm-hmm. and almost a bit of existential reexamination of what's important in life. Um, how can we maintain happiness in a more local way um, without having to accumulate things and experiences that, that are so consuming, you know? So, yeah, I, I'm hoping that people are taking advantage of this time to really reflect on what's important. And undoubtedly, there will be people who do that. It remains to be seen how many, what percentage of society, and we probably won't know for several years the answers. But there have certainly been many bright spots in this difficult time. Everybody's learning to live with less, whether it's individuals, nonprofits, government, private. It's certainly a case of all of us being in the same boat in a lot of ways. And hopefully these positive messages we can carry forward into the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today and digging into items that probably deserve a lot more than the time allotted to this podcast episode. No problem, Ian. Thank you for having me. It was fun talking to you. Meeting the Paris targets for greenhouse gas emissions is a daunting task, to say the least. It requires cooperation among sectors, with nonprofits filling the many gaps that can't be realistically addressed by public and private organizations. Over the next 12 weeks, Sand Patton will be dissecting these matters and guiding her students in turning ideas into concrete action. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargas Nessi. We also voice all ads. Ian serves as the show's writer and editor. Our logo design is by Devin Therian. Look for our monthly episodes on greenteacher.com. For access to all episodes, subscribe to Green Teacher and also receive our quarterly magazine, as well as exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll chat again soon.